Hello and welcome to Cities to Love, a podcast tour of our favorite albums from our favorite cities. I'm Taylor Ruckel and I'm in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, I'm Hayden Merrick and I'm in Brighton in the United Kingdom. And today we're going back to school. We're going to talk about the capital of College Rock, Athens, Georgia. I've never been there. I feel pretty confident saying that you've never been there, Hayden. But I also feel like maybe of all the cities we've discussed, this is the one that is the most foundational for the kind of music that you and I both love. Agreed. And you are correct. I have not been there, but I'm aware that this is the college town, along with like the Twin Cities. Husker Du, replacements. Along with Boston. Pixies, throwing muses. <laughs> Athens is a place that gave us the term college rock with bands such as... R.E.M., B-52s. Neutral Milk Hotel, of Montreal, Drive-By Truckers, Widespread Panic. There's so much. There's so much. I don't know what we're going to do. There's so much. So much. There's also, you know, if we want to get a little bit away from the college rock, Athens was also the birthplace of Quavo, of Migos fame. Also, also the launch pad for Danger Mouse, who you may know as a producer or uh, an artist in his own right, who started making music at the University of Georgia in Athens. He opened for Outkast and Goody Mob at a campus gig, which is what planted the first seeds of Gnarls Barkley. I am super interested in this city as somebody who spent some time in another small southern college town, meaning Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, I've never been to Athens, but I did once see Neutral Milk Hotel on their reunion tour at The National in Richmond, Virginia, which was pretty cool. It's kind of the next best thing, right? If you can't get all the way down there. And speaking of Virginia slash DC, DC's... (laughs) <laughs> DC's own Ian Svanonius of the band Nation of Ulysses has this really fascinating piece in the New Republic. It's called The Rise and Fall of College Rock. And it's excerpted from the book Censorship Now. <laughs> two, two exclamation points. Right now. Right now. Censorship immediately. <laughs> yep. He outlines the impetus for the college rock movement and college radio etc quote in the 60s when fm radio was less typical the fcc issued many class d radio licenses to universities which allowed them to create non-commercial stations on the little used left side of the dial hmm. despite residing in the hinterlands many of their signals were powerful with tens of thousands of kilowatts he goes on to say how these college radio stations were staffed by music enthusiasts who worked without pay and who saw college rock as a desperately needed alternative to the platinum tedium of classic and top 40 drivel. That's what we like to hear. Left side of the dial. So I did not know that's where we got the term left side of the dial. Uh, I've never like thought about that, but you know the replacements even have a song called left, left of the dial. Right. It's um, like the definitive college rock song, basically. Yeah. Yes. The national anthem of college rock. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. And this is a lot of what I've been listening to this fall, just to take a little detour there. It's this a lot of, um, you know, there's no one unified sound of what gets played on college radio. That's the point. People play what they want on college radio. But a lot of it is associated with this very hazy, very jangly sound. You mentioned R.E.M. from Athens. You mentioned the replacements. Uh, It's so synonymous with sweater weather to me. And so that's just been on in my headphones for the last few weeks as as of this recording session. Not just because we're recording an episode about Athens, but because it's in the air. Yeah, the leaves are orange. They're brown. There's a famous documentary called Athens, Georgia, Inside Out from 1986 that has a really amazing overview of the scene there at that time. Mostly the, the music 
uh, around the, you know, university scene and whatnot. But there's also a lot of talk about visual art, about poetry, about even, you know, the local food scene, the barbecue. Uh, And in this documentary, there's a really great quote from Jim Herbert, who was Michael Stipe's art professor at the University of Georgia and who made music videos for R.E.M. And uh, talking about sort of the energy of this this scene, you know, very much in line with that sort of college rock ethos that you're talking about. He says, in this town right here, one of the reasons we have a lot of creative things going on, a lot of music, a lot of painting, a lot of poetry, is that people are not thinking about taking it to New York or productions or objects, but the sense of the practice of doing it, of the making, the dignity of the making and the fun of the making. That's uh, a little foreshadowing of what we'll discuss later, I think, that yeah. not taking it to New York. But um, with that intro, let's dive into some records. Here we go. I've got my spine. I've got my orange crush. I'm ready to talk about something classic. To follow along with our focus tracks, check out the Cities to Love playlist on Spotify and YouTube. You can find links in the episode description. So, Taylor, what is your favorite REM album? It's a big question. I'm going to toss out a vote for Fables of Reconstruction. And that's a great pick. I can't I can't really dispute that. Like, I think Feeling Gravity's Pull is one of the best opening tracks on any record, maybe ever. Um, Mm -hmm. That said, I would go with Reckoning. And we could do a whole episode just like this, just batting back and forth REM records. But my classic pick, shockingly is not an album by R.E.M., but it is by a band that Peter Buck called one of the greatest in the world in that documentary I mentioned, Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. My classic pick is Chomp by Pylon from 1983. I just did a chomp, sorry. (laughs) Couldn't hear that on the microphone, but I love it. (laughs) This is the second LP from one of the original Athens post-punk bands of the early 80s. Uh, important to note, Pylon's drummer Curtis Crow was a founder of the 40 Watt Club, which at first was a practice space where they had parties and house shows named for the 140 watt bulb that lit the space. And uh, eventually it moved, of course, into larger buildings and became a key local venue for a lot of the bands of the 80s and 90s we're going to talk about here. And it still exists today, which is so cool. Also about Pylon, it's not just Peter Buck. Pretty much everyone around cites them as an influence. In the documentary, there's a whole supercut just of people name-dropping Pylon. They're one of those cult bands where once you start looking for them, you start to see them everywhere. Mm. Pylon formed in 1979. The members were all University of Georgia art students. They were inspired by this uh, beginning of a scene that was starting to form around them by bands like the B-52s who started out in Athens before moving to New York City. There's there's a... (laughs) It's very funny that I just read that quote about how it's not about taking it to New York City, but... But there's some interesting caveats here we'll get into. Um, but Pylon's inspired by them and also the the broader landscape at the time where this first wave of punk is passing away. So is disco. And uh, there's this opening and there's all these sort of there's a big opening and a lot of sounds pouring into it. Basically, I found a great interview with the online music magazine Perfect Sound Forever that has a lot of cool info about the early years and uh, about the impact of the B-52s in particular, which I want to dwell on a little bit. Because uh, Curtis Crow in this interview says, New York pretty much already had punk rock, explored punk rock, and gotten over punk rock by the time the B-52s got up there. They were kind of bored. The B-52s show up there like a fucking hurricane of clean, fresh air. They went, wow, you can still have fun, dance, and be cool. 
That's and great. Yeah, I have to bring that up, right? Because you can say the same thing about Pylon, which is where I want to start with them. Like, they're not as campy or as 50s inspired by the B-52s. Um, but what they were was every bit as cool as any New York City band from the 70s and twice as danceable and from this little college town in Georgia. The story is that Fred Schneider from the B-52s actually helps them get gigs in New York. They get a lot of positive write-ups opening for other legendary post-punk bands like Gang of Four. Off the back of that, off the critical acclaim around their first album, Gyrate, they get a lot of performance opportunities. So along comes Chomp, and it's that kind of sophomore record where they've started to find their footing as a unit, although they're not too serious about what they're doing. And crucially, they never relocated from Athens themselves. There's another interview I wanted to bring up with Lars Gottrich at NPR from 2020. This interview was done when they were releasing a you know, box set many years after this record came out. They talk about this, this attitude they had toward Athens and towards New York a little bit. And one of the things they say is that they felt like because the B-52s had gone to New York City, that left them to step up in Athens and, and rise to the, the occasion of that, that space in the scene. Also, of course, it's still cheaper to live there. So their tour earnings go a lot further. Mm-hmm. And the, the quote that I have here from, from Crow again, who's a, a amazing, amazing quote machine. He says, it was like you were expected to migrate there after graduation as a trial by fire period. Besides being intimidated by the whole prospect, I really liked trees, cicadas, hot summer nights, and skinny dipping. I wasn't really ready to give all that up to prove my mettle. Also, not the only artist to name drop cicadas. Um, yes. That'll be a running interesting. theme. Yeah. That's like that's like the secret, you know, fourth Se- secret ingredient. The fifth beetle of pylon, the fifth beetle of uh, a lot of bands we're going to talk about today. Uh, not beetle mm-hmm. cicada, but close enough, I guess. Yeah. See what you did there. Thank you. So, Chomp. This is an album that was clearly influenced by, you know, the post-punk music that was happening in New York, but it's also so insular and southern and weird in its own ways, kind of unlike anything else. Vanessa Briscoe Hay, the singer in this band, her vocalizations remind me a lot of David Byrne, for example, and yet nobody else really does what she does. I don't think I know of any other singer that can imitate train whistle sounds on a song and still sound as cool as she is. And that kind of stuff is just all throughout this album. Yeah, I I really like that. Um, the interviews that you dropped in here, I think one that struck me is from uh, Lachowski from the band. I'm not sure what. Michael Lachowski is the bassist in the band. Bassist, right. So the bassist says, one of the narratives about Chomp from what I've read in the history of Pylon for this book that's in the box set is that it says we became musicians that were willing to rearrange everything in the studio. I don't know if I really buy into that as a full answer for why Chomp sounds different. I think it was just that we are on the road a lot. I just think Chomp was a result of a maturation from lots and lots of gigs and just different types of songwriting dynamics. That's kind of interesting that even as he's, I mean, just seeing a band reflect on all of the criticism that's written about them. Yes. Is not something you often see as well, but. One of the songwriting dynamics that Michael Lukowski is talking about is improvisation is a huge part of the making of this record. Again, to bounce back to that Perfect Sound Forever interview, there's an anecdote here that I really love about the opening track from this record, which is called k just it's just called the letter k and uh what what crow says about this is k was written at a show one night we played a song that none of us knew 
We just had one little piece, a riff that we liked. We got up there and we crashed and burned. We thought, never, never will we do that again. It was the most embarrassing thing we'd done. Then the sound man came back and said, what was that you were playing? We said, yeah, we know, we'll never do it again. He said, no, it was incredible. It was great. I got it on tape. We listened to the tape and we were like, wow, you're right. It is cool. We spent the rest of the year trying to figure out what we had played that night. That's so cool. That's and that's the lead track on this record. They spent a year trying to figure out what they played, and so they were going to put that up front for you. It's such a cool. It's such a cool record. There's so much space on this album. It feels like you're in like a warehouse, hearing them just pull out song after song like that, just effortlessly on the first try. And uh, there's so many cool sounds on it too. It reminds me a lot of other '80s post-punk records of this time. There is uh, the song Italian movie theme. There's all this really cool twinkling that kind of reminds me of I Will Follow by U2. Uh, I don't really know what makes that sound. It's 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 kind of obscure, like a lot of things on this record. Yeah. Let's say xylophone. Something with, like that. Without any, <laughs> without any <laughs> without citation. Any yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, there's a running joke on this podcast that we somehow always bring up Sleazy Kinney, the band that gave us our name in every single episode like even if we're talking about country music from Uh 1980s toronto or whatever but i think we've got quite a concrete link here at least sonically it's a match it's a match yeah like uh vanessa briscoe hayes singing style like that mix of speak singing and yelping is is quite corin tucker-esque ah okay Um, i could see it I see similarities too in the cultish single string wiry guitar and bass riffs. Yeah, song yeah. like M Train yeah, is very yeah. City to Love, the album, not the podcast. Right. Like that streamlined <laughs> noise kind of sound. Um, and yeah, and then confirming that, I mean, Sleeta Kinney provide contributions to the reissue liner notes. So there we go. Confirmed. That's it. We always manage to do it. Where there's a will, there's a way to make this show about Slater Kenny every time. How did you come about this album and this band? So I actually have to thank my sister for putting me onto this finally. Indirectly, in a way. Last year for Christmas, she gave me this box of post-punk postcards, uh, where every card in this box has a design based on the cover of a different classic post-punk album. And one of them was Pylon's first album, Gyrate. And uh, I'd never listened to Pylon before. I... I can't say whether I'd ever heard of them before or remembered hearing about them. And now they're one of my favorite bands I've gotten into this year. It was one of those amazing, you know, happenstance kind of moments. I didn't read about this from a music writer. It was just something that, you know, was sort of handed to me. Yeah. In postcard form. I remember you chronicling your post-punk postcards journey. It was very exciting to see. I tried to get through back in February all the different ones that I hadn't heard before and I didn't quite make it, but I did make it as far as gyrate and decided like, all right, well, now this project (laughs) has gone as far as it really needed to because now I've got my listening for the rest of the year. Yeah. I very nearly chose that record for my album pick and it was one of the hardest choices I've had to make on this show. I don't know if you can tell I'm kind of at a loss for how to talk about this band, but it's one of those, those things that, that, you know, I feel like I've discovered this, this buried treasure i'm trying to figure out what to do with it i went with chomp mostly with the featured track in mind um but before we get to that hayden i think you owe pylon an apology a little bit maybe (laughs) yeah i will concede and owe 
and deliver pile on an apology because I joked to you about this band having really sucky artwork. Uh-huh. But I am eating my words, if you will. Ha ha ha, chomp. And uh, coming around on chomp on the album cover, uh, especially as compared to the others, there's also, I found a, a Pinterest called Cool Album Covers, and this is in there. So <laughs> that's another point in the chomp column. I think you made the right call. Also, did you know it's produced by Gene and Chris of legendary power pop band The DBs? I don't know if you're into them, but I was surprised to see that. That's a cool link to back to New York, New Jersey or wherever. Yeah, that's another band that, that way. I, I've, I've never, I never listened to them, so I have more homework to go on from here. I did find a quote from that Perfect Sound Forever interview where Vanessa Briscoe Hay says, you know, they were they were um, they were recording at Mitch Easter's drive in studio with uh, Chris Damien, Gene Holder. And she says that was in Mitch's parents garage. His mom would make us coffee and muffins. We went in and hashed out the riffs and did that fairly quickly. I think that's the last record done with that particular board. I'd ask him to change the volume on my voice. If you listen to my voice, it clips in and out because they couldn't gradually do that. So all of a sudden it just pops up. So we get a lot of uh, the quirks of this sound from, uh, uh, you know, distinctive equipment malfunctions. Yeah. And they're just uh, fueled by coffee and muffins. Yeah. Perfect conditions for making a record. Um, so you mentioned that you picked this based on not the the dinosaur album cover, but the featured track. Right. So talk to me about featured track. If we're talking about Pylon, for me, a featured track has to be the song Crazy. First of all, it's their best song, their single best song. It's so unbelievably catchy. Uh, but also, I feel like it sums up so much of the college rock aesthetic in just a few minutes. If I only had three minutes to explain all of this to you, all of college rock, this is what I would show you. You have the post-punk groove. You have the jangled pop guitars. You have basically the exact midpoint between what Pylon did for their really brief career in the small scene and what R.E.M. did to conquer the world. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's been written about uh, Athens that just sort of will be the B-52s and R.E.M. And, you know, I think if you were to complete that, it would actually be the B-52s, Pylon and R.E.M. Because Pylon mm. is just this this right in the middle, this link between the beginning of that scene and what it ultimately became. Roll credits. <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> no, because, not quite. Just kidding. Because to bring it back around, uh, I have this theory kind of that Pylon sort of, you know, spiritually passed the torch to R.E.M., you know, after this record comes out. Chomp comes out the same year as Murmur, which is also the year that Pylon broke up. And in Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, you know, Hay and Lukowski basically say they started this band as an art project and then ended it when it was starting to feel like a job. <laughs> the quote from Lukowski is, more and more people like our agent and a lot of our fans and record company people. They were trying to pressure us into doing more work, more time on the road, more time in the studio. And everybody also seemed to feel like it was time for us to make the big move, you know, go for a big career move. This is how the torch passes, right? It's not like you can just decide you're going to make your big breakout album and then do it. But Pylon certainly could have tried and they declined to. I think R.E.M. was more willing to work at that or at least, you know, stick with that as they started having more expectations put on them. Um, should go without saying, I think both bands have integrity in their, you know, respective choices. It's just different philosophies, different reasons for being in a band, both of which I respect. Pylon makes several stabs at a reunion. They opened for R.E.M. on the Green Tour. They shared a practice space with them for a while. None of the reunions really stuck, though, and now that Randall Bewley has passed away, 
they've said there's no possibility for another one. Um, but Vanessa Briscoe Hay now fronts Pylon Reenactment Society, and they're still touring, which is cool. You can go see her and hear the songs. Back to Crazy. R.E.M. also covered this song. It was the B-side on the Driver 8 single and the lead track for their compilation Dead Letter Office. And so lots of people have probably heard this song and never heard the name Pylon, which includes me until very recently. So now I know and I want to pass on. I want to pass on that knowledge if anybody else out there will recognize this these guitar arpeggios and never have heard of Pylon. You're doing the Lord's work. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 31, Crazy, by Pylon. All right, Hayden, so we've got one more classic pick, and I know this time, for sure, definitely, we've got to talk about R.E.M., right? <laughs> right? Wrong. Right? Ah! Okay. All right. I'm oh. going to be okay. Oh, okay. Oh. Okay. Are we... Are we... You know, that's... That's what I'm doing. It's so okay. <laughs> so this pick, this classic pick, is a way to talk about... Uh, it's the closest you can get to R.E.M. without actually talking about R.E.M. because they don't really need the exposure from us at yeah. this point. Uh, the band is called O.O.K., which is uh-huh. not very SEO friendly or really like verbally the kind of easiest. O.O.K. hyphenated. Um, and the album is The Complete Recordings, which was released in 2002, but it's music uh, music that was released originally between 1982 and 1984. So when did Murmur come out, R.E.M.'s first album? 83. 83. Okay, so we're like right at the same kind of time. But the reason I say this is the closest you can get to R.E.M. is because this band features Linda Stipe, uh, Michael Stipe from R.E.M.'s sister, which I, I had no idea about this band I didn't at either. all. Yeah. But um, in the research for this episode, came across them and they're super cool. I mean, these are songs driven by lolloping hypnotic bass lines. The songs are minimally arranged. They're inspired by like girl group uh, music and the harmonies yeah. from Linda Stipe, as well as Linda Hopper. And that's Linda with an I, Linda Hopper. Linda Stipe is Linda with a Y. <laughs> we've got um, we've got all the ways you can spell Linda in this band. We have, yeah. I think it's just those two, isn't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, for sure, an underrated gem from this college rock epoch. Linda Hopper is a co-vocalist and also is credited with noises. <laughs> um, Linda Stipe plays bass and sings as well. And they were the, kind of the core of the band, I think, through the two-year two or so year run and yeah this i guess we should dive a bit into what this collection compilation actually contains because we've got the first four songs which sound very different from the others are the seven inch titled wow mini album mm-hmm. <laughs> just a very adorable title the six songs after that are from an ep called furthermore what and then after that, after track 10, we've got various live recorded tracks. But I think, yeah, you pointed out that the streaming version and the Bandcamp version differ to the original or like the LP release, I guess. Yeah, well, it's just that there's one track that is missing from the streaming version and the Bandcamp version. 
uh, but you can find it elsewhere on the internet. They do a fun cover of Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. So probably a licensing thing. They left it off the re-release of, you know, in some formats. But cool thing. Look it up. It's great. It's fun. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing about this, you alluded to the, wow, mini album uh, segment of this. And we have to stop and talk a little bit more about that because there is no lead guitar on that part of this compilation just bass which is how cool what's that what's happening i know right and did you notice that like straight away because i didn't notice that straight away (laughs) i noticed it straight away in that i saw this record with a track list and credits you know (laughs) right next to each other and so immediately i saw i saw the the credits and i said no lead guitar what is this how how could this be what what manner of of music is this you know that i've never heard before um, who it was, does that's, that? <laughs> who does that? Um, it's one of those things that sort of jumps out right away. Um, you don't expect to see that in any no, era. No, totally. Really. So yeah, exactly. The first four songs are just bass, drums, and noises and right. vocals, of course. But they do a lot with their harmonies, I think, to kind of fill out the space that's left by the absence yes. of the guitar doing that harmonic material. Um, following wow mini album they (laughs) brought in a guy called matthew sweet to play guitar and he played on furthermore what which is the next six songs on the compilation so and yeah the sound isn't super different here but it's definitely much fuller he's got a johnny marion kind of reverby jangly lead guitar playing style But, you know, strangely, I don't, yeah, I don't miss the guitar on those earlier tracks. It's nice to have here, Uh, but without it, it's kind of more direct. It lands harder in a way, their their lyrics and stuff, because they've got more space, I guess. It's very college rock to sort of go one step further than punk and say, all right, we've taken it back to the most basic (laughs) guitar lines we can do. Now let's just take the guitar out altogether. Forget it. We're we're going even more fundamental, Mm. more basic, right? It's very primitive for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I originally thought there's one song on this collection called Brother, and I originally thought this would be some sibling rivalry barbs aimed at huh. Michael Stipe from Linda Stipe. <laughs> but once again, you um, you fact-checked me. Linda Stipe did not write this song. It's credited to someone named Carol Levy and is the only song on this album not credited to Linda Stipe, lyrically, that is. Yeah, and so this was a really interesting thing to me, and I I unfortunately couldn't find any more info connecting Carol Levy to this song. I wish I could have gotten some more concrete sort of explanation for for how this song particularly came to exist. What I was able to find out is that Carol Levy was a UGA art student and was the photographer who took the photo for the back cover of R.E.M.'s Radio Free Europe single, and... All I could really find out about her other than that is that she died in a car accident in 1983 and that the R.E.M. song Camera from Reckoning is about her as a tribute. And so, wow. Yeah, there's a it's interesting. Um, It's got to be the same the same person. Um, And I first found out about this from a blog called Unpopular Culture, which mentions Carol Levy in a post about the book Begin the Begin by Robert Dean Lurie, which is a book about R.E.M.'s early years. And uh, I need to read that book now, obviously, but I found out about this because that post quotes Robert Dean Lurie as saying, quote, Carol Levy's spirit hangs palpably over the origins of the Athens music scene virtually everywhere you turn. So 
here is another place yeah that's some really stellar research i i love that don't pat me on the back too hard i haven't read the book myself i'm just telling you what a blogger who read the book said so (laughs) right yeah grain of salt another link as well is that oh okay did their first new york tour with pylon yes and uh you note here that pylon carried on that tradition of the b-52s and started bringing athens bands along with them when they went out into the big wide world right the legendary music critic robert chris gal did the liner notes for this compilation and he actually even reveals his rate for the project 350 bucks in case you're interested not bad um <laughs> for for a chris gal liner notes all right yeah, yeah that's uh that's a steal man i'll get it for the songs that i've been working on i'll get him to do them <laughs> um he said below my usual word rate but it was love i did my part in an elbow cast huh. and he he gave the collection an A- minus in his consumer guide write-up, writing effusively about the work, but docking a notch for conflict of interest. And this is a record that I think is served by his liner notes more than his consumer guide. I had to drop in a quote. It's a long one. Bear with me. It's worth it. He, he writes a lot about the feeling, the attitude of this music. And one of the things he says is, it's the whole way these youngsters, who were 16 and 18 when they began, related to the Athens scene, which in its own beginnings was uncommonly idyllic, into play, not dark. But it wasn't shallow. As their name announced, R.E.M.'s depth move was the dream song, which Linda dabbled in. But in general, she approached the secrets of the subconscious by the more direct, literal route of childhood memories and polymorphic childhood consciousness. Beneath the simplicity was mystery, full of delight and touched with dread. Oh, okay, we're happy, even though they knew there were scary things in the big woods. They found the world more interesting that way. They said, why? And it sounded like, wow. Amazing. That's what you get your money's worth. Yeah, seriously. I mean, just, just if I can't drive home hard enough, $350 is not, that's, wow. <laughs> the album cover uh, reflects that kind of childhood consciousness, too. The title is written like you'd see it in one of those instructional learn to write books you have as a kid and there's the uh childlike drawings on the cover too and so it all it all ties back to this theme yeah it's all very like after school vibe yeah and also just the way that certain sounds on this record are played like you know you would play them if you were testing out everything that your instruments and your amp could do right the bass tones are so kooky on those early tracks on on brother especially as we talked about yeah it's like peter hook on a sugar high or something halloween night I love that image because it's such a tame, for Peter Hook, that is such a tame night. That is such a, <laughs> that's him, that's him dialing it back These so much. These are full bars. These are full bars, Taylor. Full candy bars. I'm sorry. Yes. I bet that's, yeah, that's, that's comparable to his usual intake, I guess. Um, yeah, but there's so much stuff. The, the drums are so punchy on the song Giddy Up. I, I also noted there's so many neat, unique sounds on this compilation. And yeah. it was mastered by Jason Nesmith, who has a studio in Athens um, and, uh, you know, appears in connection with a lot of other, you know, bands in this episode. But Hayden, if you had to pick a song from this to focus on, what would be your your feature? Yeah, it's always kind of tricky picking a feature song from an anthology like this. And we've done quite a few anthologies now, Captain Jazz, Black Tambourine, etc. But um you know, so many phases of a band are contained here. Uh, and one song can't really encapsulate all that. But I took a stab and I went with the song Such and Such, 
which was the opening track from Furthermore What, the EP on which they brought in the guitarist. So this is the first OK song with guitar. And I really like the way that the rhetorical questions on this are sung very sweetly in unison, the vocal melody in the and the instruments like do i really need this and then (laughs) the verses are more like the speak singing thing and they're recounting an impressionistic anecdote about attending a party but every now and then the rhetorical question is cut back in with a more of a melodic vocal part so it's a cool juxtaposition there yeah i love this song there's so much in it that i i think about like uh, it sounds kind of like a hopscotch chant almost in its way, the way the vocals mm. work. Um, I, I like the song for the being the point on the compilation where the jangling kind of kicks in. And uh, I also have to point out that, you know, in that write-up from Chris Gow, he alludes to how hard it is to interpret some of the words. And on this song, I had to go to Genius.com to pick out what actually was happening because yeah. the lyric as they have it there is, but to be sure, had I not gone... I would never have known that at this party, rapture and lust, she said such and such are really not much. And the first time I listened to this song, I had to rewind and keep playing it because I was so sure that that lyric actually was not that at this party, but bad Athens party, (laughs) rapture and lust. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, good spot. Do you reckon it's misquoted on genius or are you just hearing what you want to hear? No, I think I'm just hearing things, but you know. (laughs) They said why, and it sounded like wow. They said that at this party, and it sounded like bad Athens party. (laughs) Wow. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 32, Such and Such, by O.O.K. Okay, we're on to the currents. We're going to ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. What do you have for me, Taylor? current pick well we've been talking about college rock we've been talking about that a lot but i want to take some time to you know point out once again athens isn't just a great rock town and to that end my current pick is bell ringer by linqua franca from 2022 and this is a super visceral very hard-hitting hip-hop record and also the project of a fascinating figure in athens music and academia and politics and that figure is dr mariah parker rapper, labor organizer, and former Athens-Clark County commissioner. Wow. I feel like I need to, need to clarify that, that they were a, a rapper and then a local government official, and now they're an organizer <laughs> and and a, and a doctor. I could be wrong. Um, I believe this is our first doctor featured on the show. It's, it's, it's that they have a PhD in language and literacy from the University of Georgia. And this album, Bell Ringer, was part of their PhD dissertation, Uh, And uh, uh, I had to find a a breakdown on this. According to a profile in Atlanta magazine, that full project was called Bell Ringer, an autoethnographic homecoming to hip hop as school abolitionist praxis. Incredible. I wonder if that's floating around out there. PDF of it. I wonder if it is. I need to look into that more. That was a a shortfall of my research as I haven't read the full dissertation. And I, I do feel like that would be an interesting counterpart to the record because according to that profile, the third chapter of this dissertation is the album. The second chapter is the annotated lyrics. And, uh, quote, the first chapter provides the socio-political context and theoretical underpinnings of the project. Amazing. Quoting Parker now, the idea is that there is knowledge in hip hop and it can be used as an educational tool in spreading knowledge. Um, we're, we're into some really uh, big ideas here. And as an aside, I have to mention that 
Dr. Mariah Parker is probably one of the most interesting interview subjects in all of indie music right now. And there's a great piece in Spin Magazine where they go very in-depth on the education system, which is totally, you know, worth a read. Going to recommend checking that out as well. Um, Don't have time to get into that in this segment because there's just so much to talk about here. I I know what I just said about how Athens isn't all about college rock, but I kind of feel like, you know... What's more college rock than this, than making a hip-hop album your dissertation? Am I right? Very true. I mean, even their their stage name is... uh, Yes. uh, A sort of a literary pun, isn't it? A lingua franca is a language or a way of communicating which is used between people who do not speak one another's native language. Right. And uh, I I didn't know this, and I have a degree, so... (laughs) In English... (laughs) In English, no lies. I am proud to say that I did know about Lingua Franca. I'm a little bit less proud to say that I knew that because of the video game Metal Gear Solid Five. But probably the less <laughs> the, le- the less we say about that in this segment, the better. Back to uh, back to hip hop. So, mm-hmm. for background, Dr. Parker moved to Athens in 2013. They started organizing hip hop showcases, which. In an interview with Slumber Mag, they say was, quote, a form of cultural organizing to desegregate a fairly segregated Athens music scene. And they started performing as Lingua Franca through that. And then also through that, the scene became a nexus for political organizing as well. And uh, I think the album Bell Ringer is great for the way it gives a pretty in-depth breakdown of all the different sides of what Dr. Parker does across different fields. You know, for one thing, it has a narrative and thematic arc, as they explain in that Slumber Mag interview. And uh, how it works is this record starts out with the song Overture, appropriately, referring back to the murder of a 15-year-old black girl named Latasha Harlins in L.A. in 1991, which was one contributing factor that led to the L.A. riots. And then after that, there's a sort of flash forward to the present, dealing with the inequality, the social issues that still exist in the U.S., and it moves over the track list toward calling for labor action, economic justice, and for police and prison abolition, not to mention the end of colonialism in places like Palestine. And so, in other words, it's a very consciously timely record, and it's a very, time. yeah, very um, relevant right now. Through it all, you have these heavy percussive flows. The lyrics are are very powerful. It's a it's a real sit up and pay attention kind of record lyrically. And then also there's just incredible beats that will move you physically. Also, to continue on the theme of desegregating, Lingua Franca uses this record to bring together all kinds of different artists from across the larger Georgia scene. There are rappers like Dope Knife and Wester Ruler. There are indie pop artists like Night Palace and Pip the Pansy. And there are even some famous Athenian acts like Kishibashi and of Montreal on this record. Uh, of Montreal, of course, came up with the Elephant Six Collective in the 1990s. Put a pin in that. We'll be back. And uh, also, <laughs> Jeff Rosenstock is here. Pretty cool. That Jeff Rosenstock. Yeah, he's always showing up where you never expect him, isn't he? I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't really know that, but that's so cool. This is a stacked, stacked starting lineup. Yeah, and one of the biggest features actually isn't even from a musician. It's the activist and writer Angela Davis, who appears on the final track of this record. Uh, Apparently, you know, per that Slumber Mag interview again, in 2020, Dr. Parker and Angela Davis were both speakers at the same youth summit, which is how they got connected. And Parker says about that, 
We had a long conversation about international solidarity in police and prison abolition and the intergenerationality of movements, and so we stayed in touch ever since then. And then she ended up contributing some words on the excitement that she feels today. At the summit, I asked her, what do you think young folks can learn from the movement elders? And she was like, no, I learned from y'all. I'm so excited to see what y'all are doing, and I'm so inspired. That's what ended up on the album. And so it's the last song on this record, like I said, which is called Abolition. And the refrain of that song goes, if being radical is grasping from the root, that's just what I'll do, which is based on an Angela Davis quote. And it's also factually true because, you know, we get a little linguistic lesson built in with this song. <laughs> radical comes from the Latin root rad, which means root. So there you have it. That is head shakingly smart. I had to get into this a little bit just because earlier this year, I happened to read Angela Davis's book, Blues Legacies and Black Feminism. And in that book, she talks a lot about the kind of consciousness raising aspect of the blues and and talking about issues as a prerequisite in that time for, you know, the feminist and the civil rights organizing that followed, you know, the, the cultural impact of the blues. And it's hard not to see the parallels with hip hop there and particularly with what Lingua Franca is doing on a record like Bell Ringer. I, of course, have to shout out friend of the pod, Mike Lesur, our mutual editor at Flood Magazine. Uh, not the first time I've I've shouted him out talking about a hip hop record. Surely will not be the last time. <laughs> yeah. His first listen feature from last year on the title track, Bell Ringer, is the reason I heard about this record. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for everything, Mike. And you in turn are now passing that torch forward because I, I hadn't heard of this and I, I really <laughs> don't feel I have anything any intelligent observation to add to this because i am the middleman bringing you mike lasur's hip-hop recommendations <laughs> yeah um i really like uh the the structure of this how it begins with the overture and then the pacing is suitably thoughtful and story-like as you've alluded to it's so carefully thought out even how the title is to quote uh Linkwa, a jab to the face that knocks someone out completely, but it also invokes someone ringing the bell to sound the alarm about something. Yeah. Like, that's so clever. They are never just doing one thing at a time. Everything serves multiple purposes, like that route and cramming in as much as possible, you know? It's really impressive. It's really, really impressive. But, um, yeah, so we've heard about Abolition. What's, uh, what's going to be the featured track? So... Definitely go listen to Abolition, but I wanted to choose the song Oh Fuck as the featured track. I wanted to point out the uh, of Montreal feature, of course, and that Elephant Six connection, which, again, we'll be back. Um, but also the fact this is one of the more upbeat songs on the record, and that gives a lot more color and weight to the political messaging of Bellringer. This is something that Dr. Parker talked about in an interview with Rolling Stone, and what they say is, I think this only works when you also show the complexity of who you are as a person. It becomes pushy when you lose out on the fact that, like, I love to go out dancing, and I might steal your girlfriend, and that I have contemplated the end. The messy, seemingly apolitical stuff is what humanizes all the other stuff. I still have internal struggles that I need to process and get out, so I get to be a full person in this. All of us are whole people in this fight. It kind of speaks to the multi-layeredness that you're talking about. I think that's borne out in everything on this record. following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 33, Oh Fuck, by Lingua Franca. Now that we are firmly in the present and firmly outside the alternative rock genre, why don't you tell me about something else current? 
Yes, I would love to. Um, I feel like I always say that. <laughs> so yes, I'd love to. While I'm like, I'm glad that you're still enjoying this, Hayden. I'm glad yeah. you still love it. Yeah, the, we haven't lost the spark yet. This is me stalling. Like, oh yeah, what am I going to talk about? Um, no, the record we're going to talk about here is called "The Opening or Closing of a Door" by Christine Leshber, and it's from mm. last year, 2022. So um, this will probably be dropping in 2024. But I believe. Taylor, you're with me that this album, at least initially, is somewhat impenetrable. And then when you kind of get the context around it, it becomes more accessible. And not like because it's dense or difficult to listen to or anything, but very much a wash over you record. It's that kind of ambient pop that's sometimes tricky to interrogate or fully engage with, like break the surface of. I would say 100% I agree with that. And it's also the kind of record I think you can tell right off the bat that um, this is the tip of a musical iceberg. There's a lot behind this record. And so, yeah, I would love to hear more about sort of the background here. Yeah, let's let's try and break the ice and see what's going on beneath the surface. Um, a little bit of background. This is the first album released under Leshba's own name after she retired the moniker Mother's. Mothers is a band she spent eight years releasing music with. And, you know, when she speaks about this first solo record, she she describes it in quite lofty, grand ways about distilling complex ideas into absolute essentials, about the album being an encapsulation of her metamorphosis, uh, etc. So kind of peeling back there, I think this album is fundamentally the, the the songs that made her fall in love with the physical act of recording and making music. She's spoken of how with the Mother's Project, recording was just a means to capture what they were doing. It wasn't an art form or a creative act in itself. It was just, hmm. you know, taking the photo, but then not really looking at it afterwards or editing it or enjoying the process or thinking about the different angles. So right. accordingly, this album has some really interesting recording and production choices it's layered in such a way that you pick up on different things each time you listen through and you know it just sounds amazing yeah this is such a headphones album is what i would say you might listen to this on speakers once and feel like it's impenetrable um you gotta set aside the time immerse yourself in it get deep get deep Mm -hmm. in there yeah in terms of like genre like uh i think we're we're talking experimental pop some kind of pop that resides on the fringes, like yeah. Letitia Sadia from uh, Sterilab, her solo work, or artists such as Melody's Echo Chamber, Leal, Leal Neal, um, yeah. organs and synthesizers, you know, they're employed very liberally here, but used as kind of a pad rather than a melodic device. And she's borrowing techniques from minimalism, like phasing and layering, polyphonic textures and she's manipulating her voice a lot too like it's not just a way to deliver words but yeah the instruments they're they're not doing their conventional jobs the bass plays like the main counter melody on stairwell song for example while the synths produce the underlying harmony so everyone's kind of doing their bit and interfacing in a in a kind of atypical way and there's a lot uh, going on here, too. When you say everyone, tell me a little bit more about who everyone is. <laughs> everyone, yeah. Well, she worked with the Brooklyn-based composer and orchestrator Sammy Weisberg, um, 
he did the orchestration. He's a very much a minimalism meets orchestra guy. Ah. Shout out to his 2021 album Music for Strings and Winds, whose title is a an homage to Steve Reich, um, with his you know music for mallet instruments, voices, and organ, etc. Right. Uh, so yeah, we've got those woodwinds. We've got strings on the Leshba record. We've got you know chamber pop rock kind of inspirations there's lots of percussion yeah i would say if i were to try and characterize this it's definitely not rock per se but i do get major college vibes from this whole deal like it reminds me of when i would go to the contemporary classical performances at the you know music department building in college you mentioned steve yeah. reach that's like yeah it's that's i'm getting that i'm getting that for sure yeah We've got we've got hand claps all over the place as well, which I thought I think is pretty neat the way they're yeah. they're involved. Like on the song Picture Window, the hand claps kind of tie into the sense of place. So Leshbur accounts uh that she grew up in a small town in Georgia, so summertime meant crickets and you guessed it, cicad- <laughs> cicadas. There, there we go. Um, quote, the way they phase in and out of each other and the swirling movement of pollen on the water. I built this song in layers, beholding always to the backdrop of the south, the warble of head rising off the scalding pavement. I love that quote so much, and it really is so evocative and, and musical. Yeah, you can even hear the samples of crickets and cicadas in the middle of the song, which is such a cool pad to have. Um, I also have to shout out, uh, uh, only because of the you know, the word reminded me, but uh, I once saw a folk band from Athens called Cicada Rhythm at a, a show in Charlottesville. That that was one of the things that came up for me while I was um, researching for this episode. So very, very Athens, very Athens, wow. the uh, cicadas. Yeah, that's our third Athens cicada link, right? Yeah, it's very Southern. It's it's you get that a lot of places. So that song that she's talking about, uh, Picture Window, that would be a cool one to highlight. But I I also really like the song Compass, which has, again, some really interesting production choices, percussive textures, and really beautifully showcases her voice. The latter half of the song really gets into that minimalism territory, like this trance, yes. this kind of trance-like state. We've got phasing marimbas or xylophones and strikes of auto harp it could be mm. um although i couldn't find a credits list to confirm that but um but yeah when that shift hits when those you know phasing marimbas maybe come in it's so cool and surreal sounding it's like what if all the cicadas and the frogs in your yard just started chirping together in perfect rhythm <laughs> nice i've been trying and failing to train them to don't give up <laughs> Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 34, Compass, by Christine Leshber. So, <laughs> we've referenced the Elephant Six Collective in passing. Uh, I think most people who are listening to this show would be familiar with Neutral Milk Hotel and would be at least somewhat aware they came from this group of larger musicians that was based out of Athens. Uh, and so for my, my pick for something cool, I want to go in-depth on elephant six and to that end my album is drum roll (laughs) deep breath (laughs) music from the unrealized film script dusk at cubist castle by the olivia trummer control from 1996 yeah we are 
We're recording at about 1 p.m. in Arlington or about 6 p.m. in Brighton. Uh, but as I like to say, wherever you are, whatever time it is, it's dusk at Cubist Castle somewhere. <laughs> Happy hour. I cannot argue against In the Airplane Over the Sea as the best Elephant Six record, really. It's re- as revered as it is for a reason, and it truly meant everything to me as a teenager. Um, but for as collaborative as that record is, I think it's also, you know, so obviously an individual vision. Uh, and Dusk at Cubist Castle, on the other hand, I think showcases the strength of Elephant Six as an artistic community. And thus is more college rock, really? Bingo. Yes. More collaborative, more collegiate. The Olivia Tremor Control originally was founded by Will Cullen Hart, along with his childhood friend Jeff Mangum of Neutral Milk Hotel, of course. They both grew up in Ruston, Louisiana, along with folks like Robert Schneider and uh, others who would form the nucleus of the Elephant Six Collective. Will Hart came up with the name Elephant Six as a mutation of the Max Ernst painting called The Elephant Celebes. And uh, he also drew the famous logo that went on all the records. So he's he's right there in the, in the mix at the mm. beginning. This is where it gets kind of hard to talk about because across the internet there are so many conflicting sources on the timelines of the various lineups of Elephant Six bands. It's so hard to pin down who was in what band when. At some point, this band was called Cranberry Life Cycle, and then at some point they were called Synthetic Flying Machine. At some point, the lineup was a trio with Will Hart, Jeff Mangum, and Bill Doss, who grew up in a different neighboring town in Louisiana. Um, But what we do know for sure, beyond all shadow of a doubt, is that in the early 90s, they all moved to Athens with a bunch of their friends, like 10 to 20 of their friends maybe, and started calling themselves the Olivia Tremor Control. The draw for Athens in the 90s, I think, is pretty much the same as it was in the 80s. The rent was cheap. There were service jobs because of the university. People could work part-time and spend the rest of their time on their art. Um, This is something they talk about in uh, a documentary that came out earlier this year that is just called the Elephant Six Recording Company. Can't recommend that highly enough. Um, But I also, I found an interesting footnote on this about the move to Athens. Uh, Another book I haven't read and unfortunately have to rely on other people's quotes from is the book Endless Endless, A Lo-Fi History of the Elephant Six Mystery by Adam Clare. Uh, I would not normally quote from citations on Wikipedia, but this one was too good to pass up because according to one of those citations, there's a line in that book that goes, Listening to Pylon together on a drive out to a water park in Shreveport, Will, Jeff, and Robert decided they'd live in Athens together someday. Amazing. I I, I can't not bring up the possible Pylon connection, right? Yeah. You do see some Pylon t-shirts in the Elephant Six documentary, so I'm inclined to believe this is coming from a, a, a real place. Yeah. But back on topic. Where were we? Athens. <laughs> At some point, Jeff Mangum starts focusing more on Neutral Milk Hotel, Will Hart and Bill Doss recruit Eric Harris and John Fernandez to round out the Olivia Tremor Control lineup. Um, but this is all kind of beside the point, right? They're all part of the collective. So, of course, on the first full-length album this group makes, Dusk at Cubist Castle, they also have contributions from Jeff Mangum and also Julian Coster of Neutral Milk Hotel and the music tapes and Robert Schneider of The Apples and Stereo, who was, you know, such an important part of this, too. Because when the other Rustin guys move to Athens, Schneider goes to Denver, Colorado. He sets up the studio that a lot of the Elephant Six bands used. And that's where they made Cubist Castle. And We're the here. First, uh, yeah, the first Neutral Milk Hotel album was made in that Denver house, I believe. Yes, I think you're right. 
we're here at, at Cubist Castle. And Cubist Castle to me is, I mean, it's one of the coolest records that there is, I would say. It's full of these just flawless, spine-tingling melodies. It's full of mind-blowing psychedelic effects and experiments. And it's all sort of underpinned by what comes off as like the unbridled joy of just having your own space and your own tape machines that you and your friends can mess around with and really, you know, kind of create your own world inside of. It's the fun of making that Jim Herbert talked about in that Athens Inside Out quote. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it doesn't feel like a singular vision. It's way more of a mucking in album, the length and the the <laughs> tangents and the details. It's, yeah. It's a long record, and that contributes to what I think is a lot of I mean, it seems like intentional obscurity around this record, right? Like, mm. th- there's the there's the extended title, Music from the Unrealized Film Script, you know, which doesn't actually refer to any film script that actually existed. Um, it's the fact that right in the middle of this record, there are 10 tracks all in a row that are all called green typewriters with no <laughs> numbering, no apparent structure, no unifying theme between all of these tracks. Um, it's It's wild. Yeah. I read somewhere ages ago that if you make it through the 16-minute closing track from Jimmy Eat World's Clarity... Aha, uh-huh. goodbye, Sky Harbor. Yeah, yeah, that's it. If you make it through that, you'll never skip it again. And I feel that the same is true of the Green Typewriter Suite. Well, let me lay something else on you that will sort of unlock the, the mystery of this record. Well, no, something that will add an entire other layer to the mystery of this record... <laughs> There is a second disc of Cubist Castle that came with some CD pressings, which was called Explanation 2, Instrumental Themes and Dream Sequences. And what this is, it purports to be an ambient accompaniment you could play at the same time as Dusk at Cubist Castle and create a quadraphonic listening experience. Um, This is a cool ambient album. There's a lot of neat drones and, you know, um, samples and things. And yet... It's not the same length as Dusk at Cubist Castle. <laughs> so you can't you can't do the quadraphonic listening thing. And it's also not on streaming services, but you know, I sure look it hope up. someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> Play it in two browser tabs. And uh, you know, dare I say, once you've uh <laughs> once you've made it through Dusk at Cubist Castle with instrumental themes and dream sequences in your other ear, you'll never skip it again. <laughs> I bring all this up because I'm sure there's people who will want to read kind of mythology or intent into these weird, you know, um, aspects of this record. But I get the impression these guys were kind of just having fun being intentionally cryptic and also just having so many different ideas. They couldn't record them all fast enough or put them in an order that made sense to anybody but them. There's a great quote in the documentary from Dan Donahue of the band Great Lakes talking about Will Hart, where he says, I always felt like Will was the most vocal and to me most energetic person I'd ever met. Something enters him and you kind of watch it spin and he has eight responses and he wants to say them all at once and they're all funny and they're all interesting and they all mean something. And that's the feeling of listening to this record really is like, it's like there's not enough tape to hold everything that they're coming up with. And so they have to start layering stuff back over itself, right? Yeah, that's such a great link to make. To get a little bit more into kind of the the breakdown of this um, band creatively, you know, a lot of the story of the Olivia Tremor control, at least as fans know it, is the songwriting contrast between Bill Doss, who was more the pop guy, and Will Cullen Hart, who was more the experimentalist. All the great bands have those two. It's the Lennon-McCartney thing, right? 
they they make one other LP in 1999, which is called Black Foliage Animation Music Volume 1. Uh, also an excellent record with a cumbersome title that doesn't connect to anything that it, it says it connects to. And it was their final album and it's Volume 1. Brilliant. <laughs> so far, we'll get we'll get there. After this, you know, Elephant Six Collective starts getting a lot more press attention because of the, you know, breakout success of Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, the band kind of splinters after that. There's some kind of falling out or a distance grows between them. It's very vague. They don't talk a lot about this, but they split into Bill Doss's band, The Sunshine Fix, and Will Colin Hart's band, Circulatory System, which both go on to make their own records. Right. The quote from the documentary from Bill Doss is, you know, about their sudden success, quote, it didn't happen for the longest time, and then everything seemed to happen all at once. It was so crazy that it did kind of break everything apart. A lot of us were just like, I don't know which way to go. It was almost time for us to go off and do something on our own. It's interesting to think about, you know, because these guys aren't household names, but things do have a way of getting weird when you're in that kind of indie darling, you know, position. Like Bill Doss was interviewed by Rolling Stone for black foliage animation music, which is wild for a record like this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they do reunite intermittently. They have a major tour around 2011 and 2012, and they were working on a third album when Bill Doss sadly died of an aneurysm. And they held a memorial show for him at the 40 Watt Club in Athens. And um, there's a lot of stuff in the documentary, a lot of really heartbreaking footage of people like Will Hart mourning him and paying tribute to his work. And there's also footage of them working on, you know, the third Olivia Tremor Control album, which they had started. So it is possible that will still be released. They talk like they're still working on it. Um, according to setlist.fm, they've only performed once since 2012, and that was to mark the release of the book Endless Endless. So that's where things stand right now. Apparently, John Fernandez works at Wuxtree Records in Athens, which is the same record store where Michael Stipe and Peter Buck first met. We've got our, our mandated REM reference for the segment. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> you thought we were going to forget. Put the pitchforks away. <laughs> same same business, I should say. Maybe not the same location, record store. I think it might have moved since then. Um, otherwise, you know, there aren't a lot of things that tie Dusk at Cubist Castle to Athens, Georgia, sonically. Because on the one hand, the sounds and the mannerisms are very British. And then on the other, it's meant to sound like a dream. You know, but as is often the case, I think we can say that Athens lifestyle that you know this town supported for the elephant six cohort is what allowed this album to exist that that communal ethos and the economic Mm -hmm. feasibility of basing a music collective in a city like this but regardless of that of any local interest regardless of anything i had to talk about olivia tremor control uh, in one of my segments just because the that, that collective ethos is such a big part of what i love about music you know it's whatever that metaphysical thing is that allows people to share visions and help each other realize them, whether it's two people or 20 people or 200 people. Most of the times that's a really fleeting, ephemeral thing, and very often the world doesn't accommodate it for long enough that people actually produce anything. And every now and then it does, and then an even smaller percentage of the time, you get something as brilliant and completely one of a kind as Dusk at Cubist Castle. And I, you know, I've been lucky to get to experience that communal artistic thing in my own life, in my own way. And it makes a record like this feel really personal to me, even though most of the time I have no idea what the fuck is happening. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you also don't know. Yeah, no, I won't it's pretend really like I know. No way, no way. I won't even speculate <laughs> on most of this stuff. Um, it just sounds so cool. Yeah. And so for my featured track, I chose Define a Transparent Dream, which comes very early in the track list. And I think 
gives you the perfect ratio of the pop prettiness and also the wonky psychedelia of this record. You get the Bill Doss, you get the Will Hart, you get the everybody of it all. And uh, it's so, so weird, man. There's this key change in the middle. There's the the music concrete sounds. Um, there's this instrumental melody in the second section. It, it sounds like it might be hyper-processed guitar with some tape effects on it, but it also kind of sounds like the air being let out of a balloon. It's really high and squeaky <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. I don't even know what to make of it. But you said this was one of your favorite songs from this record, too. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad you picked this one. Um, if I may briefly go all out music theory nut job the floor is yours you've heard enough from me take yeah, over yeah i just think it's interesting when you've got all that experimentation going on with tape loops and stuff but to also look at why the the music itself theoretically is interesting like the chord progression for one is really special the reason it has this uplifting hopeful tone is um they flattened the seventh the seventh degree of the scale. So huh. we're in the key of B major, and in this key you wouldn't technically find an A flat major chord among the chords that belong to that key. But the chord progression here is B flat major, A flat major, G minor, and then F major. So they're giving us that A flat chord, and it creates this really nice tension. Like it's a nice kind of tension. It doesn't sound strange, but it does slightly confuse our inbuilt wiring in a good way, in a way that makes us feel happy, I think, like a surprising subversion. It makes uh, us feel like we're in kind of a dream world, but it's a good dream world. Yeah, definitely. And then at the same time, it's a descending root note thing, which is like always gorgeous. Hmm. It's very Beatles. It's very Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is you. Um, <laughs> sort of a trick borrowed from like gospel music. And the best part of all no one is actually playing these chords. They are implied only because they're not just like strumming chords. Either the bass is doing that descending root note and then the guitarist kind of is outlining certain tones, <laughs> the woozy keyboard sounding thing that I think you're right is probably a very processed guitar. Um, but yeah, and the structure too. So interesting. Just the linear A B thing and never coming back to the first section. Right. It's not an A B A B. It's an A B. Yeah, exactly. A B full stop. Such a well constructed track. Love it. I love that you worked in Mariah Carey and you thought I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> you should. Yeah, I mean, her chord progressions are excellent. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist. We now invite you to play track 35, Define a Transparent Dream, by the Olivia Tremor Control. I feel like, Hayden, basically, this this category is a funny one because everything in this whole episode has been something cool, but <laughs> what, we need one more, so why don't you bring us home? Yeah, before we have to like totally change the format of the podcast. Yeah. Quick, move on. Quick, something cool from the year 2000. It's the glands. It's the band, the glands. It's the record, the glands. The crowd goes wild. <gasps> yeah. We've got a self-titled record coming in at number six. Um, yeah. The glands are the best indie rock band you've never heard of. That is something along those lines of the title of all the um, memorial kind of articles that came out um, after the band kind of 
fizzled out, like, or should I say they were reappraised. So ah. when referring to bands like your Dinosaur Juniors and your Sabados and your Pavements, we get that slacker label tossed around, often erroneously, and the glands are a different branch of that slacker thing. Like, they're not the lightly misanthropic, throwaway, insouciant thing, but they're a band that advocated for the easy life. And, you know, even the fact they didn't start making records until they were in their 30s. Huh. Now you have my attention because you're saying there's still time. Yeah, well, the advice continues. Stay in one place. Someday everything will come our way. Goes Ah. a line from the song, I can see my house from here. Um, In other words, don't move to New York. Keep it right here in Athens. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was alluding to at the start. And uh, it seems to be a a theme here. Like you move to Athens and then you stay because, um, yeah. Anyway, sound wise, this band are... I think more reposed, a bit more poppy, less intense than the Sebados and the Dinosaur Juniors. Everything is drenched in southern humidity. And, uh, you know, they could be a little bit offbeat, a little bit strange on some of the other records. But this album, they kind of stayed in one place. As I said, they're in the pursuit of easy living. We've got uh, Ross Shapiro as the front man. And he ran, not consecutively, but an eatery in Athens called Gyro Rap, Giro Rap, and a, uh, a record store called School Kids. And I think he was someone who was very much embedded in his community, in the Athens community. And his lyrics reflected the city back to the population like they're a household name in Athens with these homespun observations. And there's a cool anecdote from Patterson Hood of uh, Drive-By Truckers, another Athens band. And he recalls walking down the street in Athens shortly after this album was released and hearing his opening track, Living Was Easy, emanating from the windows of several different houses. That's so cool. Wow. Just like, that's like... uh... I don't know what the modern equivalent for that would be. And I was going to say something dumb about like, oh, it's when big pop artist album drops at midnight and everybody's tweeting about it. But that's nothing. That's not with this. This is so much cooler. Yeah, I think maybe the equivalent is when you got your sidebar on Spotify and you can see what people are listening to. And everyone's like, everyone's (laughs) listening to Caroline Polachek or something. Yeah. Um, So you've mentioned drive by truckers. Um, but you have also, you know, noted that this is a very well connected bands band kind of uh situation we're dealing with here yeah i think on this episode we've had a few reissues with extensive liner notes we've talked about line notes for like oh okay for example um the reissue for all the gland stuff there's a box set called i can see my house from here and um you've got james mercer from the shins contributing david cross the comedian who is rivaling fred armson (laughs) for most cool music cred comedian ever um patterson hood from drive-by truckers as i mentioned and even a yola tengo link as well ira ira kaplan i wrote something for the line notes i wanted to um take a look specifically at david cross because he's also in the elephant six documentary it's wild he's absolutely that guy (laughs) 
yeah. know if I, this is this is that. <laughs> uh, sorry, I have to let everybody in on this, but this is that moment where I got to the part in the notes where I wrote down Mr. Show, more like Mr. Show off how cool my music taste is, <laughs> and I spent a good long time wondering whether I was going to read that, and now I have. So I'm glad you did. That's good. I was curious about how you know how this happened, how he got so embedded in all of these records, and. Um, Apparently, according to Wikipedia, he was born and at least partially raised in Roswell, Georgia. So he's a local. Right. He's also in the music video for Sugar Cube by Yellow Tango. So I didn't know that. Getting around. I'm pretty sure it's him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Rosh, Rosh Shapiro, the front man, sadly died uh, in 2016. He was only 53. But that's what prompted a bit of a reappraisal. And I believe mm. the box set around that time as well. Um you uh, you remarked on his singing style as something that stuck out, I believe. Yeah, I really enjoy his voice. And I, I don't know if I can quite pin down who he reminds me of, but I think I get a lot of Tom Petty on this record. And so that's one way that this record definitely reads as Southern. Tom Petty, of course, famous Floridian. And Ross Shapiro was from Atlanta originally, apparently. So mm-hmm. Also, you know, there's so much to love about this record. Multiple days this week leading up to the recording session, I have woken up with the the piano part from the song Swim already stuck in my head. So thank you for that. Nice way to start the day. Nice and bouncy. It's a good energy. It gets yeah, you going. Yeah, absolutely. Very jaunty. But, I, you know, I am curious because I had never heard of this band at all. When did you first get into The Glands? I found The Glands in my postgraduate year of university while I was living in Exeter, which, uh, for background, in case you're not familiar with Exeter, which I feel like you, you maybe you. wouldn't yes. be, is uh, proceed <laughs> is a very small cathedral city in Devon in the southwest. Uh, maybe about I don't know two thirds the size of Brighton, say. But at the time, I wasn't aware of the significance of the close knit, very influential Athens scene. But finding the glands for sure, something of that is telegraphed in their music i think it neatly paralleled my experience where i was living in this insulated college town or university town bubble you know where you'd see the same people out and about and there was like one bar slash pizza joint that all the students congregated at there was one record store and i'm not kind of saying that the cities have much in common because i'm sure there are well i know there are these towns across the world across the west but that campus town vibe and laying out on the cathedral green with Robert McKee's story. Yeah, totally. And the glands playing out of my headphones did make me feel like the living was easy. I had a room of my own and the weather so warm <laughs> to borrow some of the lyrics. Plus I could see my house from there near enough. Ha, huh. I see what you did there. And so your future track of course is. Yes, it is. that's not a setup. Unlike our usual, um, <laughs> repartee, that's a genuine, um, set up the feature track is called i can see my house from here ha it's one of those songs like get it together by the go team where it just is so happy it brightens up my whole day when it comes on it's a real favorite song material um to break down the music slightly the main guitar riff is one note literally (laughs) one note and maybe there's a bit of a theme or there's a bit of a connection with like oh okay and the simplicity of the yeah sound like it's all about the right hand or the picking hand with this riff. The rhythm is where the nuance is. And of course, there's harmony, there's chords moving beneath it. But um, uh, yeah, and Shapiro's Tom Petty-esque 
croon, as you pointed out before, but yeah, it's only one note. Um, but then as the song goes on, you get to learn so much about that one note, you know, and there's, there's such a physicality to the playing of it. You really hear the, the, the string moving and, uh, you know, by the end of the song, that one note has hopes and dreams in a family. <laughs> yeah. It develops, it becomes, yeah, a more funky guitar solo kind of thing as the song progresses. Occasionally additional notes dropped in, but anyway, yeah, this band are all about subtlety. They're about restraint, the careful crafting of songs. And this is a perfect example of that. It's a really sunny, blithe indie rock track, kind of that genre at its finest. Not to mention the fact that we can all relate, I think, to that simple, joyous excitement of seeing your house from afar, whether you've yeah. climbed up a hill or something, and being like, I can see my house from here. It's universal, and it's always acceptable to get excited about that. Also, to tie into like a sense of place, it does further that idea of the glands as home birds, which um, you know a lot of these Athens bands seem to be, and Athens is central to their story because... I mean, the album art is a shot of the inside of a house as well. They're letting us in. Um, hmm. And we like a, rec- a record with a sense of place. And for sure, we've got it here. A little bit of that Southern hospitality, yeah? Exactly. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 36, I Can See My House From Here, by The Glands. All right. It's time for our honorable mentions for this episode. We could do a whole other episode of honorable mentions, as I said. Uh, I referenced at the very beginning of this show the documentary Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, and the soundtrack from that film would also have been a worthy selection to delve more deeply into. It's got tracks by R.E.M. and Pylon, also bands like Love Tractor and Barbecue Killers. Uh, I also have to give a special commendation. If you have ever been into the White Stripes and you've never heard of Flat Duo Jets, you're going to want to go ahead and look into that. I had never heard of this band before. Um, and then seeing the documentary, um, it's astounding. They're one of those missing link bands that totally recontextualizes something you, you know, you think you already know and, and kind of understand the origins of, um, flat duo jets, go check them out. Nice. Yeah. I've got some, um, college rock cross pollination with one of my honorable mentions. It's a band called Mercyland fronted by David Barb, who not only went on to play bass for Bob Mould's post Hooskadoo band Sugar, he also produced a bunch of the stuff by The Glands. Um, so if you like that bass line from Good Idea by Sugar, which anyone who's ever heard it does, then you'll like this, this band. Uh, big major key, alternative rock songs, yada yada, nothing, nothing too crazy but um really solid band hey man that's enough for me i'm in say no more (laughs) i've also got to shout out the band nana grizzle uh in the research for this episode i watched another you know more contemporary documentary called athens georgia over under which is not affiliated with inside out uh, but it's definitely referencing back to it and uh right at the end of that documentary there's this little clip of nana grizzle playing photos from when we were young live at go bar in athens um just like (laughs) Ran up and smacked me in the back of the head, including this little clip of video in this documentary, because that song just hits me really hard every time I hear it. And um, I spent a good long time wondering if I was going to scrap my whole Elephant Six segment and talk about that instead. Um, but uh, I 
I did go and I tracked down a full video, which exists, of the performance that was clipped in that documentary, you know, from another source. And uh, I'm going to throw a link to that in the episode description just because, um, wow, yeah. wow, what a great song. Let's do that. Thank you, Taylor. Um, so I don't know about you, but even though we're recording this in December, this episode's left me feeling pretty toasty being down yeah. south this long. Oh, I know how you feel. I actually checked the weather in Athens today and it is 20 <laughs> degrees and sunny. So, nice. um, <laughs> what's that in uh, real people degrees? Hey, <laughs> that's. I don't know. 60, 68. Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty nice and toasty. Mm-hmm. What about next week, though? Well, next week, we're going to get to get our coats back on. Fear not. We're heading to Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm sure it's beautiful this time of year. <laughs> All right, I'll grab my coat and I'll see you there. For more from the hosts of Cities to Love, Check out the episode description, where you can find links to the Cities to Love playlist, as well as some of our other music writing work. Thanks to Ultimate Overshare for the use of Gotta Juice, which is our intro and outro music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. This has been Cities to Love. Cities to Love.